Have you found Jonah chapter 2? All right. This is the word of Almighty God. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Will you pray with me? Father, again we pause Again, we pray. Again, we seek you uh, in all things. God, we are in great need of your mercies. We are in great need of your grace. And we are in great need of you astonishing us with your mercy today. God, we're not good people. We need your mercy, and we need to celebrate it. Make us a people who do so. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right. Audience participation question. You ever have one of those days? (laughs) Yeah. I'm talking about those kind of days, you know, where you think it really didn't pay to get out of bed. The kind of day when you find yourself amazed that you are at all still alive and functioning by the end of the day. Have you guys ever had one of those days? I want to read you a story about a man, June 11th of this year, who had what I believe could be referred to as one of those days. This is from um, an article I found on the NPR website, though it's multiple places around the internet. Quote, a commercial... A commercial lobster diver said that he escaped relatively unscathed after nearly being swallowed by a humpback whale in a biblical-sounding encounter that whale experts describe as rare but plausible. Michael Packard, age 56, said in local interviews and on social media that he was diving off the coast of Provincetown, Massachusetts on Friday morning, that's June 11th of this year, when suddenly a whale scooped, or when the whale suddenly scooped him up. Quote, I was in his closed mouth for about 30 to 40 seconds before he rose to the surface and spit me out. Packard later wrote on Facebook, I am very bruised up, but have no broken bones. 
The Cape Cod Times reports that Packard was pulled out of the water by his crewmen and rushed back to shore where he was transported to Cape Cod Hospital. He walked, albeit with a limp, out of the hospital that afternoon. End quote. There's a lot more to that story if you want to look it up. Now, wouldn't you agree with me? I bet at the end of that day, Michael Packard was great to be alive. Yeah? I'm also willing to bet, though, if he had the choice, he probably wouldn't do that again. But if Michael's day was rough, the experience of Jonah from chapters 1 to 2, that's something else. See, back in chapter 1, the Lord called Jonah to get up and go preach to the city of Nineveh because of their great wickedness. And Jonah ran, hoping to escape that calling. He boarded a ship headed in the opposite direction. But he could never run far enough or fast enough to escape the Lord. And God hurled a great storm on the sea, and the sailors despaired of life itself. And once it was discovered that Jonah was the cause of the storm and that nothing could be done to calm the seas, Jonah told the sailors, you should hurl me into the sea. And when they did, God calmed the storm. And the sailors lived to make offerings and vows to God. But Jonah sank. In chapter 1, the author told us that Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down onto a ship, fell asleep down in the hold. And then the sailors hurled Jonah down into the raging waters, down, down, down into the sea. Jonah sinks. And the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah in the ocean's depths. This morning we pick up our study of the book of Jonah and our look at God's magnificent mercy. The Lord has been kind because he kept Jonah alive. God has been merciful to expose Jonah's sin instead of letting him live in it. And we're going to see today God is merciful in providing the fish to save Jonah's life. What now? Let's find four points today as we learn a bit about praising God for his mercy in Jonah chapter 2. I'll actually read you a moment, the last verse of chapter 1, then we'll start in chapter 2. And just so you know, we're going to spend a little bit of time across in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you've got a paper Bible, how many of you have paper Bibles? few of you do, you might want to go and put your finger in Ephesians 2 because we'll be going there a few times to see some gorgeous parallels here. Now, if you're flipping pages, you'll also not be able to write down the points, so I don't know what to do now. I just made a mistake. Okay, <laughs> point number one, salvation is about God. Did even you page flippers get that? Point number one, Salvation is about God. Jonah, I'm going to read 117 to 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, 
I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, I take us first to the last verse of Jonah chapter 1 because I want us to understand the one at work in this situation. It is the Lord who had hurled the storm on the sea and it's the Lord who provided, who appointed the fish that came and swallowed up Jonah. That fish did not happen along on its own. This was not Jonah experiencing a strange random oceanic encounter. When Jonah was cast into the sea, his life should have been over within moments of hitting the water. But God sent a fish to swallow Jonah. And in case you don't know, that is a miraculous event that saved Jonah's life. By the way, side note off of Travis's notes, don't let yourself get bogged down with people trying to scientifically explain whether or not this works. First of all, we know that a diver got scooped up in a whale's mouth and survived longer than maybe he should have already. But the fact is, do you believe that the word of God says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Then is this really hard to imagine that the Lord could preserve a human life in the body of a great fish? No. Let's not allow ourselves to become anti-miraculous because we think we're smarter than the Bible, okay? Now, in response, Jonah in the fish prayed. And you get the prayer of Jonah's from the belly of the fish in Jonah chapter 2. And it's, it's poetry. It's a psalm from verses 2 through 9. Again, look at your Bible. See those little short lines, those little poetic uh, layout of the text there? This is, a, this is a poem. This is a psalm. This is a song. It's the prayer that Jonah prays, and it has all of the typical components of a psalm of thanksgiving. Because in a psalm of thanksgiving, you will see the problem a person faced, you will see that person cry to the Lord, you will see the Lord rescue the person, and you will see the person then vow to follow their Savior. Look at verse 1. You get a summary of Jonah's assessment of this entire situation. He called out to the Lord. Jonah says he called out to God out of his distress, out of the belly of Sheol. Out, uh, now, Sheol, you guys know, that's, that's a word for the place of the dead. People in Jonah's day would use Sheol as a term for the grave, of where dead people go. It wasn't, you know, again, there's different philosophies and superstitions all around the world that surround that world that surround that word but ultimately I was dead I called to the Lord from the place of the dead and Jonah in that water knew that death was the only thing he could expect because you cannot swim in a raging sea it won't work but God answered Jonah God spared Jonah's life Jonah should be dead but in his great need the Lord saved him Verse 3 describes the danger that he was in. Look at this. Jonah was in the sea. Waves broke over his head. Then, verse 4, Jonah understood that the fish wasn't a curse. The fish swallowing Jonah was, in fact, Jonah's salvation. 
God was protecting Jonah from drowning by putting him in the belly of this monster. Verse 4, Jonah said, I was driven from God's sight. For a moment it felt like Jonah was beyond the reach of God. But then Jonah realized he would live. He would look once again toward God's temple. Now again, what's Jonah describing for us here? What one word would you have for this? I think salvation is the best word you could use here to describe what happens to Jonah, wouldn't you? I'm not saying spiritual, but physical salvation took place. Let me ask real quick. I need voices on this. Did anybody learn the word salvation in Sunday school today? Very good. Thank you. Jonah was in danger of certain death. Wouldn't you guys agree? God saved Jonah. He rescued Jonah from death. And the fact that Jonah saw fit to record this for us shows us that Jonah is praising God for giving him salvation, for rescuing him from dying, for saving him. And when you read the book of Jonah, remember I told you this, you're supposed to learn more than the account of Jonah's life and his physical salvation though, right? We're learning about God This book is about God far more than it's about Jonah. You know that. And we are to learn about God's glory and God's mercy. And today, we're going to learn about God's salvation. And the first thing I think God wants you and me to catch here is that salvation is about God. Go back with me over the verses and look at how much they focus on Jonah and how much they focus on God. In chapter 1, verse 17, who appointed the fish? God appointed the fish, didn't he? Okay, now look at chapter 2. In verse 2, who answered and heard Jonah's voice? God. Verse 3, who is the one who cast Jonah into the deep? According to verse 3, who does Jonah say cast him into the deep? God. In verse 3, whose waves are they? God's. In verse 3, whose billows are they? Who would you say is the center of this story? God. The children are doing better than the adults here, just so you guys know. When you see how much of this situation is said in the word of God to belong to God, you should know that the salvation of Jonah is God's doing. You know what Jonah contributed to his salvation here? Falling into the sea. Nothing Jonah did caused the fish to gobble him up. Now, can I tell you something important, Christians? Are you with me? We need salvation, right? Salvation from sin into the grace of God. Every human being needs that or we're dead. And when we have salvation... We need to know our salvation, like Jonah's salvation, is about God. Psalm 106, verses 7 through 8. Listen to these words. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous words. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. 
Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. In the Old Testament, when God saved his people from destruction, he did it for the sake of his own name, for God's name, that God's glory might be revealed. Isaiah 43, verse 25 God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God, this is a big deal, Christians, for you to get. God is God-centered. Do you hear that? Do you know that already, I hope? God is the most God-centered being there is. What God does, God does for God's glory. And when you think about your salvation, you must be careful to make sure that your understanding of how you were saved and why you were saved and and the entire process of your salvation from beginning to end starts with God and God's glory at the very center. Your salvation, yes, includes you, but it's not about you. Now, does it seem to you that that takes some of the shine off of salvation if it's about God and not about you? It shouldn't. Okay, for you who flip to Ephesians 2, I want to start in the middle of the, the first section, verse 4. You listen to this and you tell me if this makes salvation sound good, even if it's God-centered. Verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In case you think that God saving us for God's own sake is a bad thing, realize that we who are saved by God reap the benefits of God's desire to show off the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Hear that again. If you're saved, yes, it's about God. But your prize in this being about God is that you get to be the recipient of the immeasurable, unending, soul-filling riches of God's grace, which he's going to give you by demonstrating on you an eternal God-sized kindness. Are you okay with that? How many of you are like, no, I really don't want eternal God-sized soul-filling kindness? I want you to imagine a great, wealthy philanthropist had a desire to show the world his generosity. And imagine that he chose you to give a great gift of a new home, a new car, and a basically bottomless bank account. Would you refuse the gift because his point was for him to show that he is good? Or would you be pretty much just happy to receive the good? 
Most of you would receive the good pretty happily, right? Understand, God is greater than any human philanthropist. Okay, since she's not in the room, I can talk about my wife, right? My wife is a good cook. Have you guys ever eaten Mitzi's food before? Have you ever been really like, oh gosh, that's garbage? Yeah, I wouldn't say so. Even if she's not in the room, I wouldn't say that, right? So Mitzi, when she cooks for people, I try, I, try to, I try to like tone her down. I try to stop her from really going all out. And I can't. My wife wants to show those who come to our home, not that she's the best cook, but she wants to show love. She wants to display kindness. And so she'll cook and she'll make sure the house is clean. And, you know, she does these things because she wants to show kindness. You know, never yet have I had somebody come to my home, had Mitzi make something really yummy, and then say, you know what? This is all about you. You're just trying to show that you care. I'm so annoyed that you would do that. You know what they do? They receive the kindness and they're grateful because they know it in fact is her showing kindness to the glory of God. God is better than any host or hostess intent on demonstrating kindness. God created this universe for the purpose of displaying his own glory. And the only thing that could possibly give you joy that's going to last is the glory of the God who made you. See, that's why you exist. God cannot give you anything better than himself and his glory and his kindness because there is nothing better in creation than God and God's glory and God's kindness. So God being God-centered, even in your salvation, is both right and good. In Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, the saints, we have this gathering of saints around the throne. The Bible says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches on their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The saints in Revelation recognize that salvation, all salvation, your salvation, my salvation, anyone's salvation is the property of God. It belongs to God. It is about God. It is for God's purposes. It is for God's glory. And we rejoice in that fact. So Christian, I want you to listen carefully and I want you to adjust your thinking. When you think about your salvation, I want you to be sure that you think in whatever way 
first and foremost reminds you that being saved is first and foremost about God. Your salvation shows the goodness of God. Your salvation shows the mercy of God. Your salvation shows the love of God. You benefit greatly. You matter to the Lord, but your salvation is and always has been and always will be first and foremost about God. Jonah knew. Jonah knew his circumstances were all about God and God's mighty power. And it did good for Jonah that he would remember that it was about God. And it also did good for Jonah to remember from what he was saved. And that'll take us to our second point here this morning. Point number two, salvation is from destruction. You're saved from destruction. Salvation is from destruction. Verse 5 in Jonah chapter 2, beginning of verse 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. In our opening section, we saw a hint of the distress and the danger Jonah faced. Even as Jonah praised God for keeping him alive. Now here for just a little bit, Jonah's going to make us think even more clearly about how close he came to death. Look at verse 5. The waters closed over Jonah, but they didn't just close over him. They had a purpose. Do you see it? Why did the waters close over, to, over him? What was their rationale? Take his life. They're after him. He's surrounded by deep water. Even the seaweed gets involved. How frustrating is that? It wraps around his head. It's like he's wrapped up for burial in a shroud. Verse 6, it gets even worse. He goes down, down, down. How far down does he go? He goes down to the roots of the mountains. He is as far down as he can go. He has really reached rock bottom. And he sees himself in the place of the dead. Bars like a prison closing around him. The dead, the, the place of death, keeping him forever, never letting him go. And the words of Jonah there, which are not hard to understand, show us a significant truth. For all intents and purposes, Jonah was dead. You understand that, right? That's what he's telling you. He goes, I had no hope. I had no way of saving myself. Jonah says, I was dead. I mean, he's not saying he physically died, but he's like, I was dead. He was buried already. Well, why in the world focus on that stuff, Jonah? The darker Jonah's position here is seen to be, the greater is his salvation. It's one thing if God somehow had managed to prevent Jonah from falling into the sea. Oh no, step back. But for God to rescue him from the place of utter darkness and certain death, that glorifies God even more, right? 
Let's consider what we see depicted in Jonah's physical salvation one more time as we think about our spiritual salvation. And keep in mind the fact that the more helpless and needy you were at the point of your salvation, the more glory is God's for saving you from that state. I'll illustrate here with something medical. I want you to imagine you've got a simple sickness. Maybe you have a sinus infection. Are any of you sinus infection getting people? Few of you know what this is like, right? It is obnoxious, makes you miserable. If you're me, it makes your family miserable when you're miserable. And you go to the doctor and the doctor prescribes to you an antibiotic and after a few days of you faithfully taking your medicine without forgetting, you feel better. Now, if that happens, are you grateful? Sure, right? You're grateful to the doctor for the prescription, but, you know, it's not like you weep with joy and want to give him a gift. Have any of you ever thought, man, this amoxicillin, (laughs) I've got to go, I'm going to go wash the doctor's car every day for a year. No. Yes, the doctor prescribed an antibiotic, but you visited him, right? You paid him. You told him what was wrong with you. You bought the medicine. You took the medicine. You paid for the medicine. You're grateful that you got it. But this is not life-changing gratitude. Am I right? Now, imagine that you've been in a severe car accident. You're picked up and you're rushed by ambulance to a nearby hospital. And there a doctor performs a necessary surgery to save your life. Are you more grateful than for the amoxicillin? Probably. The doctor rescued you from a far more dangerous predicament. All you did was keep your heart beating. The doctor fixed up your injured body. Now, ask yourself, when we think of our salvation, which picture is accurate? The sinus infection or the car accident? The answer is neither. I was tricking you. Who, how many of you thought neither one? A couple of you did, didn't you? Neither of those two is biblically accurate for your state in salvation because not even Jonah's near-death experience goes far enough. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says this, And you were, what word? You were dead, not you were dying. Now, you had almost gotten there. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hear the word of God as it speaks about you and me before our salvation. We were not sick. We were not injured. We were not sinking toward death. As for you, you were dead in sins and trespasses. Yes, we followed the world, the flesh, the devil. We became children who deserved the wrath of God and there was not one single thing we could do to save ourselves, not one. 
R.C. Sproul used to remind us that when we think about salvation, we should not see ourselves as a drowning person about to go under for the last time. Instead, if we really want the biblical picture of where we were in our sin before we were saved, we were a corpse at the bottom of the lake. That corpse can't grab a life preserver. That corpse can't do something good to get out. It can't choose to breathe. That's what it means when the Bible says you were dead. God, by God's great power, for God's great glory, reached down into the depths and made us alive when we were dead. Look at verse 4 and 5. Again, we read them a moment ago of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did God do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were dead. God made us alive. We had no hope. We had no life. We had nothing that we could do to save ourselves or to make ourselves savable. Only God, by God's sovereign action for the sake of God's holy glory, could rescue us from our destruction and give us life in Jesus Christ. Salvation is from destruction. We had earned the judgment of God. We had earned hell for sinning against God. And there was not a single thing we could do to fix the problem. But God made us alive. God made our spiritual heart beat. God made us want to know him. God saved us from destruction. Why focus on things like this? Isn't it obvious? If we're going to be properly grateful, properly worshipful, properly in awe of saving grace from God, we must know what our salvation is from. We must know that we were helpless, hopeless, because we had sinned against God and were spiritually dead. We must know that God didn't just give us an antibiotic to beat an infection. God gave us life when we were corpses. If you're going to glorify God best, you've got to see that God did all the work to save your soul. You and I get no credit for our salvation because we did nothing to contribute to it. We cried out to God for salvation after God gave our hearts spiritual life so that we could do so. A hundred percent of the glory for your salvation and mine must belong to the Lord And seeing that we were saved from utter destruction, from a place of utter helplessness, that's the only way that we give God all the glory for our salvation. That's why this doctrine I'm getting at is important because if you think you contributed to your salvation, you rob God of glory. Let's not do that, okay? And I think Jonah knew that his salvation was all about God. And I think Jonah knew that his rescue was really from death. It was from the, that he'd been rescued from death when the fish swallowed him. 
And it was after the fish swallowed Jonah that Jonah was able to see God had spared his life. And then Jonah responds with a prayer. Look at verse three, or point three, end of verse six. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace. That's our third point. Salvation is by grace. Look at the end of verse six. It says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. See, Jonah knows God did the work to save him before Jonah was actually even able to cry out to the Lord for that salvation. You read it right here. Jonah was sinking down, down, down into the sea, into death. God brought his life up from the pit. God acted. God moved. God picked Jonah up. Yes, he used a fish, but this was all God's doing. It was no credit to Jonah. God did that moving. And then we see Jonah, as God brought up his life from the pit, remembered the Lord. Jonah understood that God had not abandoned him. God would have been fully just, fully right to abandon Jonah in the sea. But the Lord chose to save Jonah's life. And when Jonah realized that the Lord had provided him with physical salvation, then Jonah speaks of God not as somebody over there, but, oh, Lord, my God. Suddenly, Jonah doesn't act like God is some deity out there. Jonah doesn't just say, yeah, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Jonah speaks of crying out to God because he has a relationship with God. God saving Jonah from death establishes this relationship. So Jonah, he prayed, and Jonah's prayer was heard by God in God's holy temple. God heard in heaven. But what's glorious here is there is not a single hint that Jonah thinks he's going to take credit for the work God has just done. God saved Jonah from death. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. Jonah doesn't say he was sinking, that he had a flash of insight. He prayed and made God have to bring him up. No, Jonah's experience was the opposite. God put Jonah in the fish, saved his life, made him see then Jonah cries out to the Lord as his God. Friends, this is the biblical picture of salvation of everyone who's saved, isn't it? When anybody is forgiven by God, they are saved by an act of God's grace. And that act of God's grace does not come to you because you did a good thing. You don't get God's salvation because you did some sweet religious action. You do not get God's salvation because you just pray the words of some prayer that you don't believe. You don't get God's salvation because you're not as bad as other people or because you change your ways. You get the salvation of God given to you as a gift and you receive that gift through faith and faith alone. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for you who are still following along over there. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Being saved by grace means that our rescue from destruction comes to us as a gift from God. How do you take hold of the gift of salvation? 
You don't take hold of the gift of salvation by performing religious rituals or doing religious actions. You take hold of the gift of salvation. You receive it by faith. And that faith, as Paul writes, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of your works. Because God will not have us boast of saving ourselves. Jonah was saved when God acted. And Jonah's being saved was a gracious gift given him by God. And for you and me to be saved from hell is just the same. It's God's doing. It's God's grace to God's glory. And we must always respond to it. And how do you think you should respond to God saving your dead soul and making you alive? Wouldn't you think worship and obedience would look right? Respond in worship. Respond in obedience, but never respond by thinking that you being saved has anything to do with you being better than somebody, you're smarter than somebody else. Salvation is about God. It is from destruction. It is by grace. And when we're rescued by God, we're changed by God, and the life of the saved should never be the same again. That leads us to our final point this morning. Point number four, salvation should lead to worship and obedience. Salvation should lead to worship and obedience. Look at the last three verses, 8, 9, and 10. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So like many psalms of thanksgiving, this one closes with commitment. Jonah has realized that the people who follow false gods, the people who follow vain idols, they are forsaking any hope of receiving and keeping God's steadfast love. You follow somebody or something other than the God of the universe, you lead your soul to eternal death. Remember, the saved are saved from destruction. Worshiping something other than God, that will destroy you. But Jonah, verse 9, says he's going to give God thanks. Jonah's going to make proper sacrifices to God. And and that's not Jonah saying, I'm going to pay God back for my salvation. Not at all. What it is, is Jonah performing acts of worship in accord with Old Testament law as a way of honoring the Lord who saved him. And Jonah, after being saved by God, makes promises to God that he will obey God. He's going to worship God. He's going to keep his vows He's going to live a changed life because of the glory of God. Then in verse 10, the Lord has the fish spit Jonah out on the shore. So we know that the story of Jonah's life is going to continue, and we, Lord willing, will pick that up in chapter 3 next week. But before we close, can we see one more clear comparison between Jonah's physical salvation and our spiritual salvation in Ephesians 2 especially? Jonah, in response to being physically saved, thanks God, worships God, commits himself to obey God. And that must, in fact, be the response of everybody who finds spiritual salvation in Jesus. Look at Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
after God says that he saved us by grace, through faith, not by works, we read that God has a plan for the life of every single believer in Christ. Once you've been forgiven by God, your life should be given to glorifying your God. That will give you joy. God has fashioned you as his very own work of art. God has prepared a way for you to display God's goodness as you do the things that God has called you to do. Obedience to the word of God, worshiping the Lord, gathering with the people of God to worship the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord, telling other people about the Lord. These are things that believers do because God has rescued us. Salvation should lead you to worship and obedience. Now, will it lead you to perfection? Not in this life. Not in this life, right? You may get better, but you're going to have days when you have to go and apologize to somebody for how you responded to them. I've already been having one of those days. I know what they're like. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me, dear friends. We have all sinned against God and we have all earned death under God's wrath. And the only way to have life is by God's free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. So I ask you first, have you come to Jesus for salvation? Because if you haven't, You've got to come to Jesus if you wish to live. So let go of sin. Believe in Jesus. Run to Jesus in your heart, repenting of sin. And ask Jesus, please, Jesus, be my Savior. Be the Lord of my life from now to the day I die and you resurrect me. Jesus promises that everyone who comes to him in faith and repentance, he will save. I urge you, if that's not been your life, that you would run to Jesus. And if you have come to Jesus, like most people in a church in Vegas on a Sunday morning, let what we see here in Jonah chapter 2 shape your thinking about your salvation. Let it lead you to praise God, to give thanks to God. Why? Because salvation is about God. Salvation is from destruction. Salvation is by grace. And salvation should, it must, lead to worship and obedience. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, I thank you very much for the grace that you give us. I thank you for saving me when I could never have even wanted to save myself. I give you all the glory all the credit for every part of my salvation. And Lord, I would pray that as we are here today, as we think about you, as we think about living for you, that we would respond to salvation with right thinking that credits you with right doctrine that takes no glory from you and with a deep desire to obey you in spirit and in truth. That we pray, Lord, 
in Christ's name. Amen.